Hi and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Sam. And I'm Caitlin. So this week I am doing the complete opposite of my last episode and I'm taking us back in time. Now I wish I could say it's my oldest one to date but I don't actually think it is so please bear with me. It is interesting, trust me. Um, But this week I am going to tell you about Kate Webster. I haven't, surprisingly. I have not heard this name. So looking forward to to see what you are going to tell us. Yeah. Okay, so I'll just begin. Um, Catherine Lawyer, or Lawler, sorry, it's L-A-W-L-E-R. That's how she was first born before it's Kate Webster. She was born in Killeen County, Wexford, in what is now the Republic of Ireland. And she was actually born in 1849. So we are a while back, like I said at the beginning. Now, she was poor but respectable, um, and her parents, that's what they were classed as as well. And remember, we're in the 1800s. Poor was poor, you know. Now, as a small child, she was caught stealing on numerous occasions, and she developed a reputation of dishonesty. Now, in her early teens, she stole loads like quite a lot of money and she used it to sail to Liverpool. Now she claimed to have married a sea captain called Webster which is how she's now known as Kate Webster by whom according to her she had had four children but she did have like she had a reputation for absolute talking shite so there's also no children to be seen. Is it you Sam? It was me. She's an ancestor actually. No anyway so We don't actually know if this is true. It is very doubtful. Now, Kate spent the next few years living on her wits and also just what she could steal. She tried picking pockets, but she wasn't the best at doing that. And so she was sent to prison for four years at the age of just 18. Now, on release, Kate took work as a cleaner and she often was cleaning out her employer's possessions before moving on. So she wasn't also the best at cleaning, but she, you know, took her employer's jewellery, clothes, anything she could find, she'd sell it, she'd get the money, you know, and then she'd move on to the next one. Now, in 1873, she settled at Rose Gardens in London's Hammersmith area. Her next door neighbours were Henry and Anne Porter, whom she got on very well with, and they do feature a little bit later on. She then moved to Notting Hill to a new job as a cook and housekeeper to Captain Wilbist. And whilst there, she met a man named Strong. So that was his surname. I don't have his first name, with whom she went to live with. And she also became pregnant with his child. Now, Kate gave birth to a son on the 19th of April, 1874. And she was promptly abandoned by Mr. Strong without any means of support. That you know there wasn't like social security or anything like that then and a bit of a a dick move from him but it was very common especially back then because they were unmarried she now gave birth he didn't want a kid also still happens nowadays as we know but you know back then it was a very bad reputation for a single woman so Kate resorted to her usual dishonest practices and she served several prison sentences as a result of this whilst also having her child. 
Now, on release as well from Wadsworth in 1877, she again went for some domestic work. Firstly, with the Mitchell family in Teddington, um, who she was to say that they didn't have anything worth stealing. So she moved. She was constantly on the move at this time and she used several aliases, including Webster and her maiden name, Lawyer or Lawler, sorry. Now, Sarah Crease, another domestic servant, became friends with Kate somewhere around this period. I don't know the exact date. And Sarah was who found herself looking after Kate's son during the spells that she had in prison. So it was quite good for Kate that she had Sarah. Now, in January 1879, Kate moved to Richmond, and on the 13th of January, she entered the service of Mrs. Julia Martha Martha Thomas at number two Vine Cottages in Park Road in Richmond. To begin with, the two women got on very well, and Kate recorded that she felt she could be happy working for Mrs. Thomas, who was comfortably well off, although rather eccentric, and she was a woman in her mid-50s who lived alone. Soon, however, the poor quality of Kate's work and her frequent visits to local pubs began to irritate Mrs Thomas, and after various reprimands, she gave Kate notice, with Kate's dismissal to take effect on Friday the 28th of February. So she really only lasted just over a month, and things weren't looking great. This period's notice was a fatal mistake on the part of Mrs Thomas, though, and she became increasingly frightened of her employee during its period, so much so that she actually asked friends from her church and relatives to stay in the house with her. Like, on that note, I just feel that no notice period would probably be more beneficial for her because imagine having to stay with someone and continue to pay them for the services even if they aren't great at providing said service for a certain amount of time before they'll get out your house. Now, Friday, yeah, it's it's crazy and it gets worse. So Friday the 28th, it arrived and Kate, she hadn't managed to find a new job or any accommodation. So she pleaded with Mrs Thomas to be allowed to remain in her house just over the weekend. And unfortunately for Mrs Thomas, she ended up agreeing to this and Let's be real. I say like, oh, this is a shame, but I would do the same. You know, if you were staying with me, Caitlin, we're like, oh, well, no, I need another few days. I'd be like, yeah, sure, sure, no problem. Now, on the Sunday morning... Oh, you'd morning, be absolutely terrible. You would be this person. They wouldn't leave. Yeah, I'd be like, oh, just stay another year. <laughs> um, on the Sunday morning of the 2nd of March, 1879, Mrs Thomas went off to church as usual. Kate was allowed Sunday afternoons off of work, but she had to be back in time for the evenings for Mrs Thomas to go to the evening service. As well, back then, you know, church was a big thing. I don't know if she was Catholic, Protestant or whatever, but they go to church a lot, especially on a Sunday. Now, on the Sunday morning, Sorry, on the Sunday afternoon, Kate went to visit her son, who was as usual in the care of Sarah Crease, and then went to a pub on the way back to Vine Cottages. Now, this meant that she got back late, which really inconvenienced Mrs Thomas, who again reprimanded her before rushing off, so because she didn't want to be late for the church service. Now, fellow members of the congregation noticed that Mrs Thomas seemed agitated. Whether this was because she suspected Kate's dishonesty and feared her home was being robbed, it, it's possible, but we don't really fully know why she felt the way she did. 
Whatever the reason, though, Mrs. Thomas left church before the end of the service, which wasn't like her, and she went home. Sadly, though, without asking anyone to accompany her. Precisely what happened next is it is unclear, as it was many, many years ago. And also it was just between two people and no witnesses to a certain extent. So you have to rely on what is, shall we say, confessed in this situation. So not to spoil the ending, but Kate later describes in her confession to the police when she is caught for the murder of Mrs. Thomas, she says, We had an argument which ripened into a quarrel, and in the height of my anger and rage, I threw her from the top of the stairs to the ground floor. She had a heavy fall. I felt that she was seriously injured and I became agitated at what had happened, lost all control of myself and to prevent her screaming or getting me into trouble, I caught her by the throat and in the struggle choked her. So at her trial, though, the prosecution painted a little bit of a different picture. Mrs Thomas's next door neighbour, Mrs Ives, heard the noise of the fall, followed by silence and at the time thought no more of it. But little was she to suspect what was to happen next. Kate, of course, had the problem of what to do with the body. But instead of just leaving it and, you know, escaping, because as well, it's so long ago, there's no idea. You can practically get out of there, probably get away with it if you manage to get to another country or, you know, away from the situation. But no, Kate decided to dismember Mrs Thomas's body and then dispose of the parts in the river, which is never a good idea, as we all know. So Kate set about this task with a will, firstly cutting off Mrs Thomas's head with a razor and meat saw, and then hacking off her limbs. She parboiled the limbs and torso in a copper pot on the stove and burned Mrs. Thomas's organs and intestines. Also on this, the pot on the stove, it's like an open fire. It's an open flame. It's not like an agar or what we have now. Even Kate was revolted by all of this and the enormous amount of blood everywhere, as you would be. So she did take numerous breaks, but she stuck to the job and... She burnt or boiled all of the body parts and then packed the remains into a wooden box, except for the head and one foot, because she couldn't find room for it. It's been said that Kate even tried to sell the fatty remains from the boiling body as dripping down at the local pub, because she headed there after dealing with all of this, because she needed a bit of a drink and she needed a break. Mrs Ives was later to report a strange smell from next door, which was caused by all the burning and the boiling. And it kind of just gives, what's it, Jeffrey Dahmer vibes for me. Now, Kate disposed of the spare foot on a manure heap, but was left with the problem of the head, which she decided to place into a black bag. She continued to clean up the cottage on the Monday and the Tuesday. And then she borrowed one of Mrs Thomas's silk dresses went to visit the Porter family on the Tuesday afternoon, taking the black bag containing the head with her. Now, this is Henry and Anne Porter, her Hammersmith neighbours, who she knew for a few years and she got on really well with. 
She told them that she had benefited under the will of an aunt who had left her a house in Richmond, which she wanted to dispose of together with its contents, as she had decided to return to Ireland. She asked Henry Porter if he knew a property broker, like an estate agent, who might be able to assist her. Later in the evening, Kate excused herself and she went off, apparently to visit another friend, returning later without the black bag. Now, she left with the black bag, but she never came back with it. This black bag, though, was never found. Both Henry Porter and his son Robert had carried the bag for Kate at various stages of their walk to a railway station and then also to two pubs that they had went to along the way, and they both noticed how heavy it was. They never opened the inside of it, obviously. They were just carrying it on her behalf, but they realised, hmm, this is quite a heavy bag. This left Kate with the rest of the human remains in the box to dispose of, and she sought the services of young Robert Porter to help her with this, taking him back home with her for the purpose. She and Robert carried the box between them to Richmond Bridge, where Kate said she was meeting someone who was taking the box and told Robert, just go on without her. Robert was to hear a splash of something heavy hitting the water below a few moments before Kate caught up with him again. This time, again, there was no box. There was no other person that he saw, you know, picking this up. It was just a splash. The box was discovered, though, the next morning by a coal man who must have had such an awful shock when he opened it. He reported his discovery to Inspector Harbour at Barnes Police Station and the police had the various body parts examined by a local doctor who declared that they were from a human female and noticed that the skin showed signs of having been boiled. Without the head, however, it wasn't possible to identify the body. Kate, meanwhile, was calling herself Mrs Thomas and wearing the dead woman's clothes and jewellery. She kept up pressure on Henry Porter to help her dispose of the property and he introduced her to a Mr John Church, who was a publican and general dealer, who he persuaded to buy the contents of the house. Kate and Church seemed to rapidly become friends and they also started going drinking together a few times. The real Mrs Thomas had not been reported missing at this stage and the papers referred to the human remains in the box as the Barnes Mystery, a fact known to Kate as she could read, which, you know, is quite a big thing for like back in that day. And so could the Porter family. Robert told his father about the box he had helped Kate carry, which was like the one described in the papers. Kate agreed a price for the furniture and some of Mrs Thomas's clothes with John Church and he arranged for their removal. John arrived at the Vine Cottages on the 18th of March to collect the furniture, furniture sorry, and he agreed to pay Kate £68 for the contents of the whole house. £18 of it will be in advance. Now, if my Google search is correct, that is the equivalent now in 2023 to 10420 spot two five pounds which is crazy especially for that amount back in the day but again it was a big house she had money mrs thomas should i say had money it was gonna be beautiful inside wasn't it unsurprisingly though mrs ives the next door neighbor she was getting suspicious because she was seeing her neighbor's furniture get taken away and so she questioned kate as to what was going on Mrs Church was later to find a purse and diary belonging to Mrs Thomas in one of the dresses because obviously her husband was helping Kate remove everything so her, her Mrs Church was going to see everything. There was also a letter in it from a Mr Menhenick to whom Henry Porter and John Church paid a visit. He 
Min Hennick, should I say, knew the real Mrs. Thomas and it became clear from the discussion that it could well be her body in the box. So the three men together go to Min Hennick's solicitor in Richmond and they also go to the police station and they reported their suspicions. The next day, a search was made of number two vine cottages and an axe, razor and some charred bones were recovered together with the missing handle from the box found in the river. So on the 23rd of March, a full description of Kate Webster was circulated by the police in connection with the murder of Mrs Thomas and the theft of all of her effects. Kate had decided to flee to Ireland, taking her son with her, which to be, was to be the first place the police were going to look for her because she was from Ireland. Everybody knew that. And she had also told people that she was going to go back there. So not very smart. Now, she was arrested on the 28th of March and she was kept in custody awaiting collection by two detectives from Scotland Yard. She was then brought back to England and taken to Richmond Police Station, where she made a statement on the 30th of March and was formally charged with the murder of Mrs Thomas. The statement accused John Church of being responsible for Mrs Thomas's death, and he was subsequently arrested and charged with the murder as well. Fortunately, though, he had a strong alibi and had also assisted the police in discovering the crimes. Now, at the committal hearing, the charges against him were dropped while Kate was remanded in custody. She was transferred to Newgate Prison to save the long journey by horse-drawn prison van across London each day for her trial, which to even picture that is crazy. What is going on? Yeah. It's like, obviously, they don't have cars, but even when you're I'm reading these stories or whatever. I think I'm still picturing vans, cars. You know what I mean, if that makes sense. Um, so Kate's trial opened on the 2nd of July, 1879, before Mr Justice Denman at the Central Crim Criminal Court, which is the Old Bailey next door to Newgate. In view of the seriousness of the crime, the crime was led by the Solicitor General, Sir Hardin Gimford, and Kate was defended by Mr Warner Slay. A hatmaker named Mary Durden gave evidence for the prosecution, telling the court that on the 25th of February, Kate had told her that she was going to Burn Birmingham to take control of the property and jewellery and everything else that had been left to her by a recently deceased aunt. This, the prosecution claimed, was clear evidence of premeditation, as the conversation had occurred six days before the murder. One of the problems of the prosecution case, however, was proving that the human remains the police had found were actually those of Mrs. Thomas. Remember, this is 1879. There's not really much DNA profile filing or databases going on, really, is there? Now, it was a weakness that her defence sought to capitalise on, especially as without the head, there was no means of positively identifying them at the time. Medial evidence was given to show that all the body parts had belonged to the same person, though, and that they were from a woman in her 50s. So it does practically describe Mrs Thomas, just without a head or proof. Now, the defence tried to suggest that Mrs Thomas could have died of natural causes in view of her agitated state when she was last seen alive, leaving church on the Sunday afternoon. Both Henry Porter and John Church gave evidence against Kate describing the events of which they had been involved and her defence again tried to point the finger of suspicion at the both of them. 
In his summing up, the judge, however, pointed to the actions and previously known good characters of them both. So two of Kate's friends, Sarah Crease and Lucy Loder, give evidence of her good nature as well. So it was a lot of back and forth. She was blaming other people, but they were like, oh, but Kate's a good person. Now, late on the afternoon of Tuesday, the 8th of July, the jury retired to consider their verdict, returning just over an hour later to pronounce her guilty. Before she was sentenced, Kate yet again made a complete denial of the charge, but cleared Church and Porter of any involvement in the crime. So I understand that that's a good thing from her. But I mean, if you're saying you're not guilty of any of this, how can that you then go ahead and be like, oh, but it wasn't those two guys. They had nothing to do with it. So that part I don't fully get. As was normal, she was asked if she had anything to say before she was sentenced and claimed to be pregnant. She was examined by some of the women president, uh, president, sorry, present in the court and this claim was dismissed because it was just another one of her lies. She went back to Newgate and was transferred the next day to Wadsworth to await execution. It has been suggested that Wadsworth did not have a condemned cell at this time, although it would seem unlikely that that they wouldn't have this like practically almost every jail back then did because you know capital punishment was a big thing in any event though kate was guarded round the clock by teams of female prison officers kate was to make two further confessions in wadsworth the first implicating mr strong who was the father of her child a few years ago but these allegations they were just baseless it was just another one of her lies to try and get away from it Kate was informed by her solicitor that no reprieve was to be granted to her, despite a small amount of public agitation for, commu for commutation. Sorry. So some of the public did want her to be freed. They didn't believe it was her. But on the eve of her hanging, Kate made another confession to the solicitor in the presence of the Catholic priest attending, which was Father McHenry, which seemed somewhat nearer the truth. She stated that she was resigned to her fate and that she would almost rather be executed than return to a life of misery and deception. The actual execution of the sentence of death had changed a great deal over the 11 years between the ending of public hangings and Kate's death, even though the words of the sentence had not. So no longer was it a public spectacle with the prisoner being given a short drop and allowed to die in agony. Now, William Marwood had great improvements to the process and had introduced the long drop method designed to break the person's neck and cause instant unconsciousness. I don't know if this is a pro or a con because either way you're still getting killed. But anyway, things had changed. The execution was, as usual, to take place three clear Sundays after sentence and was set for the morning of Tuesday, the 29th of July at Wadsworth Prison. Now, Wadsworth was originally the Surrey House of Correction and it had been built in 1851, but it did take over the responsibility for housing their condemned prisoners on the closure of one of their other jails in 1878. So this is a newish prison for hanging. Now, Kate was to be the only the second person and the only woman to actually be hanged there. At 8.45am, the prison bell started the toll and a few minutes before 9am, the undersheriff, the prison governor, Captain Colville, the prison doctor, two male wardens and Marwood formed up outside her cell. Inside, Kate was being ministered 
by Father McHenry again, and attended by two female ward, ward, wardens or wardresses. Now, she would have typically been offered a shot of brandy or something before the execution commenced, you know, a shot of courage, whatever it is, which she would have taken. The governor entered the cell and told her that it was time and she led out between the two male wardens, accompanied by the father. Across the yard, they had a purpose-built execution shed, which was nicknamed the Cold Meat Shed. Now, having the gallows in a separate building spared all the other prisoners from the sound of the trap falling and made it easier for the staff to deal with the execution and removal of the body afterwards. Now, as Kate entered the shed, she would have been able to see what where she was going, obviously. A large white painted gallows with the rope dangling in front of her with just a noose laying on the trap doors. So not the best thing to be going towards. The idea of coiling up the rope, you know, when you with the noose in at the bottom, it was a bit tight with those circles, if that makes sense. To bring the noose uh, to chest level came later because it was just kind of a rope hanging there. They also had a brass bit in the noose added years afterwards as well. Now, Marwood stopped her on the chalk mark at the double trap doors and he placed a leather body belt around her waist to which he secured her wrists whilst his assistant, which is probably just another one of the wardens, strapped her ankles with a leather strap. She was not restrained in her cell because this became the normal practice later on. So, you know, she was free walking this whole time. She wasn't restrained. She was supported on the trap. Yep. She was supported on the trap by two of the wardens standing on planks set across it so that she wouldn't fall. And this had been normal practice for many, many years in case the prisoner fainted or if they struggled at the last minute or, you know, if they got the complete fear and tried to run away. Now, Marwood placed the white hood over her head and adjusted the noose, leaving the free rope, which because it was not circled round, going down her back. Her last words were, Lord, have mercy upon me. He quickly stepped to the side and pulled the lever and Kate plummeted down eight feet into the brick-lined pit below. Now, Marwood used significantly longer drops than later were found to be necessary. Kate's body was left to hang for the usual one hour before being taken down and prepared for burial. It's probable that two newspaper reporters would have been allowed in to attend this. It was wow. usual at the time. Just I was going to say eight feet, I feel like, is an unnecessary drop. Yeah, it's That's quite far. a lot. It's, yeah, it's very far. And no say about it, your neck will probably break. So I guess he had, like, good intentions, if you can even say that. Now, at the, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? As in, like, well, the other one, I'm going to tell you a wee bit about it, but he didn't have good, he just wanted them to suffer. So the, the longer the drop, the bear the intentions I don't even know um but at this time as well I say two press were allowed in because the banning of public executions was actually set in 1868 and the uh, the abolition of beheading and quarter and quartering shall we say in the UK wasn't actually banned until 1870 the age of that's mad well, it's, I've got another fact for you in a second that is even crazier. It's not to do with the UK, but um, the age at which a person could be executed, it was also raised first to 16 and then 18 in 1933. So that's some fact that applies oh to God, the UK. Oh my God, that's mad. Yeah, 1933. Now, I'm not sure about these 
other countries, you know, like I don't know when all of these other ones either abolished it or weren't allowed to do this and that. However, I heard earlier this week, out of the blue, it wasn't even part of this research, okay, that the last beheading, beheading with an actual guillotine in France was as late as, do you want to guess? I am going to say, because you've said late as, so I'm kind of like, okay, 1941. 1977. Shut up. Yes. Now, this is a French for you. Like, I don't want to be that guy. But I mean, 1977 was a beheading with a guillotine. But that was that was the last one. It was September 1977, which is crazy to even think about. That's now, nuts. I feel like that always reminds me of like old, old era. So I didn't realise people still actually done that. Yeah, like you still picture this being black and white, but it's not. It's 1977. Our parents and everyone else was alive. It's just mental. Now, they would have been expected, uh, this back to the execution, sorry. They would have been expected to report that the execution had been carried out expediously, which just means that it was carried out with speed and efficiency. This whole process that I've just spoke about could have taken around two minutes in those days and was considered vastly more humane than Calcraft's execution. So this was the person that uh, first originally like made up the whole this is what you need to do so Calcraft he employed the short drop method of execution in which the drop through the trap door might be around three feet or so so that was often insufficient oh to, wow yeah I was gonna say you just stand <laughs> you would literally just stand there with something around your neck and it was rather insufficient to break the prisoner's neck and therefore death was not always instantaneous it typically occurred slowly by strangulation so it was practically torture shall we just say so that's why this other guy with the eight feet yeah it was longer than necessary i think i'd rather but at least that, it though. done the job yeah it did what it was meant to do yeah now the black flag was hoisted on the flagpole above the main gate where a small crowd of people had gathered for her execution they would have seen and heard nothing and yet these rather pointless gatherings they did still continue outside prisons during executions until abolition now another wee bit of a fun fact or i don't know if it's a fun fact but a fact okay in 1965 the death penalty for murder in britain was suspended for five years and in 1969 this was made permanent However, it was not until 1998 that the death penalty in Britain was finally abolished for all crimes. Yes, it hadn't happened back to, since the 60s, but it didn't get fully abolished until the 90s. The last See, when you were saying about people standing out... Oh, sorry, sorry. Go on. No, no, on you go. When people stand outside the courtrooms, they still do that in America. Like they stand yeah. outside execution places because people still get executed in America. Yeah, they can stand outside. People do it like randomers. And then to go into it, um, you get, I think, is it the person getting executed, family or friends or whatever, and then the person that they had killed or done the whatever they did to, they also get allowed in to watch still, I believe. I'm sure it is. Yeah, I'm sure it is. <laughs> it's oh, it's crazy. Like, But we've had this chat before. It's, a, it's not black and white, very grey area. I don't agree with it, but alas. Now, the last people executed in the UK were Peter Allen and Gwyn Evans on the 13th of August, 1964. 
Now back to Kate. So later in the day, Kate's body it was buried in an unmarked grave in one of the exercise yards at the prison. Nobody else was to be buried in this grave. Although after the 90th execution, the authorities started to reuse the male graves, but not hers. She was the only female hanged in that prison. She's listed in the handwritten prison records as Catherine Webster, interred in the 29th of July, 1879, which just means that a corpse is placed in this grave. Typically, it has some funeral rites, but that's what that means. Now, although she was the second person to be executed, she was buried in grave number three because the graves were numbered 135 on one side and on the other side, 246, kind of like, you know, streets in the, on, for houses. Now, it was decided to use the ones on the um, odd side first. So that's just a fun fact again. Now, 134 men were hanged at Wadsworth up until 1961. But Kate, like I said, was the one and only female to be hung there. And that is the story of Kate Webster. I, I find these ones really interesting, like the execution ones, because I'm like, imagine how we would tell stories now if execution was still a thing. I often wonder as well, like I'm not pro death penalty, but like, would there be as many crimes if the death penalty was still an option? I don't know. I, I guess it would depend on what the crime was. And I guess if you're to look at countries as well that still have the death penalty, for example, America, I know we always bring America into this, but, you know, you're rife, that there seems to still be loads of crime and murder. So would it deter you? It yeah, deter, true, it would deter actually. Me. It would deter me for sure, but I mean, <laughs> I don't actually want to commit a crime, so I don't know. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. No, it is, it's funny, because, like, actually... You hear about all these like crimes in the UK, and I'm like, I wonder if we still had the death penalty, would they be as committed? But then, yeah, you're right with America. But then, I don't know if it generally, if you're in that mindset, does it matter? Like, are you mattering about doing that? Probably not. And then also as well, you think we've always spoken about, oh, did you even know you murdered that person? You just kind of went into a rage of red. You were seeing red, or you murder someone because you think you're not going to get caught. So it's like, I'm not going to get caught, so I'm not going to get the death penalty. It's a weird one. It's definitely food for thought, but I don't think there's a mm. right or a wrong answer. No, definitely not. Definitely. 